Hello, and welcome to Storytime. I'm so glad you could make it. Before we start tonight's story, I would like to remind you that this story is over 100 years old. This means that it is very much of its time, and can use words and phrases that by today's standards could be considered offensive, or at best, strange to our modern ears. I have done my best to change words or phrases that are obviously needlessly offensive, however I cannot guarantee that I have found them all, or am even aware of the possible origins of some, and so if what I read does have negative connotations that causes offence, I apologise and direct you to the author of the works being read. If you would like to support this audio production, I would really appreciate it if you would donate to my Patreon. The link is in the show description, or you can type into your browser patreon.com forward slash Martin Lovell. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffries, narrated by Martin Lovell. Episode 8, Chapter 18, The King's Levy. The King's Booth stood apart from the rest. It was not much larger, but properly thatched with straw, and the wide doorway hung with purple curtains. Two standards stood beside it, one much higher than the other. The tallest bore the ensign of the kingdom, the lesser the king's own private banner as a knight. A breastwork encircled the booth, enclosing a space about seventy yards in diameter, with a fosse and stakes so planted as to repel assailants. There was but one gateway, opposite the general camp, and this was guarded by soldiers fully armed. A knight on horseback in armour, except his helmet, rode slowly up and down before the gate. He was the officer of the guard. His retainers, some thirty or forty men, were drawn up close by. A distance of fifty yards intervened between this entrenchment and the camp, and was kept clear. Within the entrenchment, Felix could see a number of gentlemen and several horses caparisoned, but from the absence of noise and the fact that everyone appeared to walk daintily and on tiptoe, he concluded that the king was still sleeping. The stream ran beside the entrenchment and between it and the city. The king's quarters were at that corner of the camp highest up the brook, so that the water might not be fouled before it reached him. The king's levy, however, did not seem to be hereabouts, for the booths nearest the headquarters were evidently occupied by great barons, as Felix easily knew from their banners. There was here some little appearance of formality. The soldiery were not so noisy, and there were several officers moving among them. He afterwards discovered that the greater barons claimed the right to camp nearest the king, and that the king's levy was just behind their booths. But, unable to discover the place, and afraid of losing his liberty if he delayed longer, Felix, after hesitating some time, determined to apply direct to the guard at the gate of the circular entrenchment. As he crossed the open ground towards it, he noticed that the king's quarters were the closest to the enemy. Across the little stream were some cornfields, and beyond these were the walls of the city, scarcely half a mile distant. There was no outpost. The stream was but a brook and could be crossed with ease. He marvelled at the lack of precaution, but he had yet to learn that the enemy and all the armies of the age were equally ignorant and equally careless. With as humble a demeanour as he could assume, Felix doffed his cap and began to speak to the guard at the gateway of the entrenchment. The nearest man-at-arms immediately raised his spear and struck him with the butt. 
the unexpected blow fell on his left shoulder, and with such a force as to render it powerless. Before he could utter a remonstrance, a second had seized his boar spear, snapped the handle across his knee, and hurled the fragments from him. Others then took him by the shoulders and thrust him back across the open space to the camp, where they kicked him and left him, bruised and almost stupefied with indignation. His offence was approaching the king's ground with arms in his hand. Later in the afternoon, he found himself sitting on the bank of the stream far below the camp. He had wandered thither without knowing where he was going or what he was doing. His spirit for the time had been crushed, not so much by the physical brutality as by the repulse to his aspirations. Full of high hopes and conscious of great ideas, he had been beaten like a felon hound. From this spot beside the brook, the distant camp appeared very beautiful. The fluttering banners, the green roofs of the booths, of ferns and reeds and boughs, the movement and life, for bodies of troops were now marching to and fro, and knights in gay attire riding on horseback made a pleasant scene on the sloping ground with the forest at the back. Over the stream, the sunshine lit up the walls of the threatened city, where, too, many flags were waving. Felix came somewhat to himself as he gazed and presently acknowledged that he had only had himself to blame. He had evidently transgressed a rule, and his ignorance of the rule was no excuse, since those who had any right to be in the camp at all were supposed to understand it. He got up, and returning slowly towards the camp, passed on his way the drinking place where a groom was watering some horses. The man called to him to help hold a spirited charger, and Felix mechanically did as he was asked. The fellow's mates had left him to do their work, and there were too many horses for him to manage. Felix led the charger for him back to the camp, and in return was asked to drink. He preferred food, and a plentiful supply was put before him. The groom, gossiping as he attended to his duties, said that he always welcomed the beginning of a war, for they were often half-starved and had to gnaw the bones like the dogs in peace. But when war was declared, vast quantities of provisions were got together, and everybody gorged at their will. The very dogs battened. He pointed to half a dozen who were tearing a raw shoulder of mutton to pieces. Before the campaign was over, those very dogs might starve. To what war did Felix belong? He replied, the king's levy. The groom said that this was the king's levy where they were, but under whose command was he? This puzzled Felix, who did not know what to say, and ended by telling the truth, and begging the fellow to advise him as he feared to lose his liberty, the man said he had better stay where he was and serve with him under Master Lacey, who was mean enough in the city, but liked to appear liberal when thus consorting with knights and gentlemen. Master Lacey was a merchant of Aesi, an owner of vessels. Like most of his fellows, when war came so close home, he was almost obliged to join the king's levy. Had he not done so, it would have been recorded against him as a lack of loyalty. His privileges would have been taken from him, possibly the wealth he had accumulated seized, and himself reduced to slavery. Lacey, therefore, put on armour and accompanied the king to the camp. Thus Felix, after all his aspirations, found himself serving as the knave of a mere citizen. He had to take the horses down to water, to scour arms, to fetch wood from the forest for the fire. He was at the beck and call of all the other men, who never scrupled to use his services, and observing that he never refused, put upon him all the more. 
On the other hand, when there was nothing doing, they were very kind and even thoughtful. They shared the best with him, bought wine occasionally, wine was scarce, though ale plentiful, as a delicacy, and one, who had dexterously taken a purse, presented him with half a dozen copper coins as his share of the plunder. Felix, grown wiser by experience, did not dare refuse the stolen money. It would have been considered as the greatest insult. He watched his opportunity and threw it away. The men, of course, quickly discovered his superior education, but that did not in the least surprise them, it being extremely common for unfortunate people to descend by degrees to menial officers if once they left the estate and homestead to which they naturally belonged. There as cadets, however humble, they were certain of outward respect. Once outside the influence of the head of the house, and they were worse off than the lowest retainer. His fellows would have resented any show of pride, and would speedily have made his life intolerable. As he showed none, they almost petted him, but at the same time expected him to do more than his share of the work. Felix listened with amazement to the revelations, revelations to him, of the inner life of the camp and court, the king's weaknesses, his inordinate gluttony and continual intoxication, his fits of temper, his follies and foibles, seemed as familiar to those grooms as if they had dwelt with him. As for the courtiers and the barons, there was not one whose vices and secret crimes were not perfectly well known to them. Vice and crime must have their instruments. Instruments are invariably discreet, and thus secrets escape. The palace intrigues, the intrigues with other states, the influence of certain women, there was nothing which they did not know. Seen thus from below, the whole society appeared rotten and corrupted, coarse to the last degree, and animated only by the lowest motives. This very gossip seemed in itself criminal to Felix, but he did not at the moment reflect that it was but the tale of servants. Had such language been used by gentlemen, then it would have been treason. As himself of noble birth, Felix had hitherto seen things only from the point of view of his own class. Now he associated with grooms, he began to see society from their point of view and recognised how feebly it was held together by brute force, intrigue, cord and axe, and woman's flattery. But a push seemed needed to overthrow it, yet it was quite secure nevertheless, as there was none to give that push, and if any such plot had been formed, those very slaves who had suffered the most would have been the very men to give information and to torture the plotters. Felix had never dreamed that common and illiterate men such as these grooms and retainers could have any conception of reasons of state or the crafty designs of courts. He now found, though they could neither read nor write, they had learned the art of reading man, the worst and lowest side of character, to such perfection that they at once detected the motive. They read the face, the very gait and gesture gave them a clue. They read man, in fact, as an animal, they understood men just as they understood the horses and hounds under their charge. Every mood and vicious indication in those animals was known to them, and so too with their masters. Felix thought that he was himself a hunter and understood woodcraft. He now found how mistaken he had been. He had acquired woodcraft as a gentleman. He now learned the knave's woodcraft. They taught him a hundred tricks of which he had no idea. They stripped man of his dignity and nature of her refinement. Everything had a blackguard side to them. 
he began to understand that high principles and abstract theories were only words with the mass of men. One day, he saw a knight coolly trip up a citizen, one of the king's levy, in the midst of the camp and in broad daylight and quietly cut away his purse, at least a score of persons looking on. But they were only retainers and slaves. There was no one whose word for a moment would have been received against the knights who had observed this and plundered the citizen with impunity. He flung the lesser coins to the crowd, keeping the gold and silver for himself, and walked off amidst their plaudits. Felix saw a slave nailed to a tree, his arms put round it so as to clasp it, and then nails driven through them. There he was left in his agony to perish. No one knew what his fault had been. His master had simply taken a dislike to him. A guard was set so that no one should relieve the miserable being. Felix's horror and indignation could not have been expressed, but he was totally helpless. His own condition of mind during this time was such as could not be well analysed. He did not himself understand whether his spirit had been broken, whether he was really degraded with the men with whom he lived, or why he remained with them, though there were moments when it dawned upon him that this education, rude as it was, was not without its value to him. He need not practice these evils, but it was well to know of their existence. Thus he remained, as it were, quiescent, and the days passed on. He really had not much to do, although the rest put their burdens upon him, for discipline was so lax that the loosest attendants answered equally well with the most conscientious. The one thing all the men about him seemed to think of was the satisfying of their appetites. The one thing they rejoiced at was the fine dry weather, for, as his mates told him, the misery of camp life in rain was almost unendurable. Chapter 19 Fighting Twice Felix saw the king. Once there was a review of the horse outside the camp, and Felix, having to attend with his master's third charger, a mere show and affectation, for there was not the least chance of his needing it, was now and then very near the monarch. For that day, at least, he looked every whit what fame had reported him to be. A man of unusual size, his bulk rendered him conspicuous in the front of the throng. His massive head seemed to accord well with the possession of despotic power. The brow was a little bare, for he was no longer young, but the back of his head was covered with thick ringlets of brown hair, so thick as to partly conceal the coronet of gold which he wore. A short purple cloak, scarcely reaching to the waist, was thrown back off his shoulders so that his steel corslet glistened in the sun. It was the only armour he had on. A long sword hung at his side. He rode a powerful black horse, full eighteen hands high, by far the finest animal on the ground. He required it, for his weight must have been great. Felix passed near enough to note that his eyes were brown and the expression of his face open, frank and pleasing. The impression left upon the observer was that of a strong intellect, but a still stronger physique, which latter too often ran away with and controlled the former. No one could look upon him without admiration, and it was difficult to think that he could so demean himself as to wallow in the grossest indulgence. As for the review, though it was a brilliant scene, Felix could not conceal from himself that these gallant knights were extremely irregular in their movements, and not one single evolution was performed correctly, because they were constantly quarrelling about precedence, and one would not consent to follow the other. 
He soon understood, however, that discipline was not the object, nor regularity considered. Personal courage and personal dexterity were everything. This review was the prelude to active operations, and Felix now hoped to have some practical lessons in warfare. He was mistaken. Instead of a grand assault or a regular approach, the fighting was merely a series of combats between small detachments and bodies of the enemy. Two or three knights with their retainers and slaves would start forth, cross the stream, and, riding right past the besieged city, endeavour to sack some small hamlet or the homestead of a noble. From the city, a sortie would ensue. Sometimes the two bodies only threatened each other at a distance, the first retiring as the second advanced. Sometimes only a few arrows were discharged. Occasionally, they came to blows, but the casualties were rarely heavy. One such party, while returning, was followed by a squadron of horsemen from the town towards the stream to within 300 yards of the king's quarters. Incensed at this assurance, several knights mounted their horses and rode out to reinforce the returning detachment, which was loaded with booty. Finding themselves about to be supported, they threw down their spoils, faced about, and Felix saw for the first time a real and desperate melee. It was over in five minutes. The king's knights, far better horsed and filled with the desire to exhibit their valour to the camp, charged with such fury that they overthrew the enemy and rode over him. Felix saw the troops meet. There was a crash and cracking as the lances broke. Four or five rolled from the saddle and onto the trodden corn, and the next moment the entangled mass of men and horses unwound itself as the enemy hastened back to the walls. Felix was eager to join in such an affray, but he had no horse nor weapon. Upon another occasion, early one bright morning, four knights and their followers, about forty in all, deliberately set out from the camp and advanced up the sloping ground towards the city. The camp was soon astir watching the proceedings, and the king, being made acquainted with what was going on, came out from his booth. Felix, who now entered the circular entrenchment without any difficulty, got up on the mound with scores of others, where, holding to the stakes, they had a good view. As the king stood on a bench and watched the troops advance, shading his eyes with his hand, as it was but half a mile to the walls, they could see all that took place. When the knights had got within two hundred yards and arrows began to drop amongst them, they dismounted from their horses and left them in charge of the grooms, who walked them up and down, none remaining still a minute so as to escape the aim of the enemy's archers. Then, drawing their swords, the knights, who were in full armour, put themselves at the head of the band and advanced at a steady pace to the wall. In their mail, with their shields before them, they cared not for such feeble archery, nor even for the darts that poured upon them when they came within reach. There was no foss to the wall, so that, pushing forwards, they were soon at the foot. So easily had they reached it that Felix almost thought the city already won. Now he saw blocks of stone, darts and beams of wood cast at them from the parapet, which was not more than twelve feet above the ground. Quite undismayed, the knights set up their ladders, of which they had but four, one each. The men-at-arms held these by main force against the wall, the besiegers trying to throw them away and chopping at the rungs with their axes, but the ladders were well shod with iron to resist such blows, and in a moment Felix saw with intense delight and admiration the four knights slowly mount the parapet and cut at the defenders with their swords. 
the gleam of steel was distinctly visible as the blades rose and fell. The enemy thrust at them with pikes, but seemed to shrink from closer combat, and a moment afterwards the gallant four stood on top of the wall. Their figures, clad in mail and shield in hand, were distinctly seen against the sky. Up swarmed the men-at-arms behind them, and some seemed to descend on the other side. A shout rose from the camp and echoed over the woods. Felix shouted with the rest, wild with excitement. The next minute, while yet the knight stood on the wall and scarcely seemed to know what to do next, there appeared at least a dozen men in armour running along the wall towards them. Felix afterwards understood that the ease with which the four won the wall at first was owing to there being no men of knightly rank among the defenders at that early hour. Those who had collected to repulse the assault were citizens, retainers, slaves, any, in fact, who had been near. But now the news had reached the enemy's leaders, and some of them hastened to the wall. As these were seen approaching, the camp was hushed, and every eye strained on the combatants. The noble four could not meet all their assailants. The wall was but wide enough for two to fight, but the other two had work enough the next minute as eight or ten more men in mail advanced the other way. So they fought back to back, two facing one way and two the other. The swords rose and fell. Felix saw a flash of light fly up into the air. It was the point of a sword broken off short. At the foot of the wall, the men who had not had time to mount endeavoured to assist their masters by stabbing upwards with their spears. All at once, two of the knights were hurled from the wall. One seemed to be caught by his men, the other came heavily to the ground. While they were fighting their immediate antagonists, others within the wall had come with lances and literally thrust them from the parapet. The other two still fought back to back for a moment, then, finding themselves overwhelmed, they sprang down among their friends. The minute the first two fell, the grooms with the horses ran towards the wall, and despite the rain of arrows, darts and stones from the parapet, Felix saw with relief three of the four knights placed on their chargers. One only could sit upright unassisted, two were supported in their saddles, and the fourth was carried by his retainers. Thus they retreated, and apparently without further hurt, for the enemy on the wall crowded so much together as to interfere with the aim of their darts, which, too, soon fell short. But there was a dark heap beneath the wall, where ten or twelve retainers and slaves, who wore no armour, had been slain or disabled. Upon these the loss invariably fell. None attempted to follow the retreating party, who slowly returned towards the camp and were soon apparently in safety. But suddenly a fresh party of the enemy appeared upon the wall, and the instant afterwards three retainers dropped as if struck by lightning. They had been hit by sling stones, whirled with great force by practised slingers, these rounded pebbles came with such impetus as to stun a man at two hundred yards. The aim, it is true, is uncertain, but where there is a body of troops, there are sure to strike someone. Hastening on, leaving the three fallen men where they lay, the rest in two minutes were out of range and came safely into camp. Everyone, as they crossed the stream, ran to meet them, the king included, and as he passed in the throng, Felix heard him remark that they had had a capital main of cocks that morning. Of the knights, only one was much injured. He had fallen upon a stone and two ribs were broken. 
The rest suffered from severe bruises but had no wound. Six men-at-arms were missing, probably prisoners, for, as courageous as their masters, they had leapt down from the wall into the town. Eleven other retainers or slaves were slain, or had deserted, or were prisoners, and no trouble was taken about them. As for the three who were knocked over by the sling stones, there they lay until they recovered their senses when they crawled into camp. This incident cooled Felix's ardour for the fray, for he reflected that, if injured thus, he too, as a mere groom, would be left. The devotion of the retainers to save and secure their masters was almost heroic. The mailed knights thought no more of their men unless it was some particular favourite than a hound slashed by a boar's tusk in the chase. When the first flush of his excitement had passed, Felix, thinking over the scene of the morning as he took his horses down to water at the stream, became filled at first with contempt, and then with indignation. That the first commander of the age should thus look on while the war was won before his eyes, and yet never send a strong detachment or move himself with his whole army to follow up the advantage, seemed past understanding. If he did not intend to follow it up, why permit such desperate ventures, which must be overwhelmed by mere numbers, and could only result in the loss of brave men? And if he did permit it, why did he not, when he saw that they were overthrown, send a squadron to cover their retreat? To call such an exhibition of courage a mane of cocks, to look on as it a mere display for his amusement, was barbarous and cruel in the extreme. He worked himself into a state of anger, which rendered him less cautious than usual in expressing his opinions. The king was not nearly so much at fault as Felix, arguing on abstract principles, imagined, he had long experience of war, and he knew its extreme uncertainty. The issue of the greatest battle often hung on the conduct of a single leader, or even a single man-at-arms. He had seen wars won and lost before. To follow up such a venture with a strong detachment must result in one of two things. Either the detachment in its turn must be supported by the entire army, or it must eventually retreat. If it retreated, the loss of prestige would be serious and might encourage the enemy to attack the camp, for it was only his prestige which prevented them. If supported by the entire army, then the fate of the whole expedition depended upon that single day. The enemy had the advantage of the wall, of the narrow streets and enclosures within, of the houses, each of which would become a fortress, and thus, in the winding streets, a repulse might easily happen. To risk such an event would be folly in the last degree. Before the town had been dispirited and discouraged by the continuance of the siege, the failure of their provisions or the fall of their chief leaders in the daily combats that took place. The army had no discipline whatever, beyond that of the attachment and the retainer to his lord, and the dread of punishment on the part of the slave. There were no distinct ranks, no organised corps. The knights followed the greater barons, the retainers the knights, the greater barons followed the king. Such an army could not be risked in an assault of this kind. The venture was not ordered, nor was it discouraged. To discourage, indeed, all attempts would have been bad policy. It was upon the courage and bravery of his knights that the king depended, and upon that alone rested his hopes of victory. The great baron whose standard they followed would have sent them assistance if he had deemed it necessary. The king, unless on the day of battle, would not trouble about such a detail. As for the remark that they had had a good mane of cocks that morning, he simply expressed the feeling of the whole camp. 
The spectacle Felix had seen was, in fact, merely an instance of the strength and of the weakness of the army and the monarch himself. Felix afterwards acknowledged these things to himself, but at the moment, full of admiration for the bravery of the four knights and their followers, he was full of indignation and uttered his views too freely. His fellow grooms cautioned him, but his spirit was up, and he gave way to his feelings without restraint. Now, to laugh at the king's weaknesses, his gluttony or follies, was one thing. To criticise his military conduct was another. The one was merely badinage, and the king himself might have laughed if he had heard it. The other was treason, and, moreover, likely to touch the monarch on the delicate matter of military reputation. Of this Felix quickly became aware. His mates, indeed, tried to shield him, but possibly the citizen, his master, had enemies in the camp, barons, perhaps, to whom he had lent money and who watched for a chance of securing his downfall. At all events, early the next day, Felix was rudely arrested by the provost in person, bound with cords and placed in the provost's booth. At the same time, his master was ordered to remain within, and a guard was put over him. Chapter 20 In Danger Hope died within Felix when he thus suddenly found himself so near the executioner. He had known so many butchered without cause that he had indeed reason to despair. Towards the sunset, he felt sure he should be dragged forth and hanged on the oak used for the purpose, and which stood near where the track from Icy joined the camp. Such would most probably have been his fate had he been alone concerned in this affair. But by good fortune, he was able to escape so miserable an end. Still, he suffered as much as if the rope had finished him, for he had no means of knowing what would be the result. His heart swelled with bitterness. He was filled with inexpressible indignation. His whole being rebelled against the blundering, as it were, of events which had thus thrown him into the jaws of death. In an hour or two, however, he sufficiently recovered from the shock to reflect that most probably they would give him some chance to speak for himself. There would not be any trial. Who would waste time in trying so insignificant a wretch? But there might be some opportunity of speaking, and he resolved to use it to the utmost possible extent. He would arraign the unskilful generalship of the king. He would not only point out his errors, but how the enemy could be defeated. He would prove that he had ideas and plans worthy of attention. He would, as it were, vindicate himself before he was executed, and he tried to collect his thoughts and put them into form. Every moment the face of Aurora seemed to look upon him lovingly and mournfully, but beside it he saw the dusty and distorted figures of the corpse he had seen drawn by the horses through the camp. Thus, too, his tongue would protrude and lick the dust. He endured, in a word, those treble agonies which the highly brought and imaginative inflict upon themselves. The hours passed, and still no one came near him. He called, and the guard appeared at the door, but only to see what was the matter, and, finding his prisoner safe, at once resumed his walk to and fro. The soldier did not, for his own sake, dare to enter into conversation with a prisoner under arrest for such an offence. He might be involved, or suspected. Had it been merely theft or any ordinary crime, he would have talked freely enough and sympathised with the prisoner. As time went on, Felix grew thirsty, 
but his request for water was disregarded, and there he remained till four in the afternoon. They then marched him out. He begged to be allowed to speak, but the soldiery did not reply, simply hurrying him forward. He now feared that he should be executed without the chance being afforded to him to say a word. But, to his surprise, he found in a few minutes that they were taking him in the direction of the king's quarters. New fears now seized him, for he had heard of men being turned loose, made to run for their lives, and hunted down with hounds for the amusement of the court. If the citizen's wealth had made him many enemies, men who he had befriended and who hoped, if they could see him executed, to escape the payments of their debts, on the other hand, it had made him as many friends, that is, interested friends who trusted by doing him service to obtain advances. These latter had lost no time, for greed is quite as eager as hate, and carried the matter at once to the king. What they desired was that the case should be decided by the monarch himself, and not by his chancellor or a judge appointed for the purpose. The judge would be nearly certain to condemn the citizen and to confiscate whatever he could lay his hands on. The king might pardon, and would be content with a part only, where his ministers would grasp all. These friends succeeded in their object. The king, who hated all judicial affairs because they involved the trouble of investigation, shrugged his shoulders at the request and would not have granted it had it not come out that the citizen's servant had declared him to be an incapable commander. At this the king started. We are indeed fallen law, said he, when a miserable traitor's knave calls us incapable. We will see this impudent rascal. He accordingly ordered that the prisoners should be brought before him after dinner. Felix was led inside the entrenchment, unbound and commanded to stand upright. There was a considerable assembly of the greater barons anxious to see the trial of the moneylender, who, though present, was kept apart from Felix, lest the two should arrange their defence. The king was sleeping on a couch outside the booth in the shade. He was lying on his back, breathing loudly with an open mouth. How different his appearance to the time when he sat on the splendid charger and reviewed his knights! A heavy meal had been succeeded by as heavy a slumber. No one dared to disturb him. The assembly moved on tiptoe and conversed in whispers. The experience divined that the prisoners were certain to be condemned, for the king would wake with indigestion and vent his uneasy sensations upon them. Full an hour elapsed before the king awoke with a snort and called for a draught of water. How Felix envied that draught! He had neither eaten nor drunk since the night previous. It was a hot day, and his tongue was dry and parched. The citizen was first accused. He denied any treasonable designs or expressions whatever. As for the other prisoner, till the time he was arrested, he did not even know he had been in his service. He was some stroller whom his grooms had incautiously engaged, lazy scoundrels, to assist them. He had never even spoken to him. If the knave told the truth, he must acknowledge this. Oh, now, said the king, turning to Felix, what do you say? It is true, replied Felix. He has never spoken to me, nor I to him. He knew nothing of what I said. I said it of my own account, and I say it again. And pray, Sir Knave, said the king, sitting up on his couch, for he was surprised to hear one so meanly dressed speak so correctly and so boldly face him. What was it you did say? If your majesty will order me a single drop of water, said the prisoner, I will repeat it word for word. 
but I have had nothing the whole day and I can hardly move my tongue. Without a word, the king handed him the cup from which he had himself drunk. Never, surely, was water so delicious. Felix drained it to the bottom, handed it back, an officer took it, and with one brief thought of Aurora he said, Your Majesty, you are an incapable commander. Go on, said the king sarcastically. Why am I incapable? You have attacked the wrong city. These three are all your enemies, and you have attacked the first. They stand in a row. They stand in a row, repeated the king, and we will knock them over like three ninepins. But you have begun with the end one, said Felix, and that is the mistake. For after you have taken the first, you must take the second, and still after that the third. But you might have saved yourself much trouble and time if... If what? If you had assaulted the middle one first. For then, while the siege went on, you would have been able to prevent either one of the other two towns from sending assistance, and when you had taken the first and put your garrison in it, neither of the others could have stirred or reaped their corn, nor could they even communicate with each other since you would be between them. And, in fact, you would have cut your enemies in twain. Bah, St. John, swore the king. It is a good idea. I begin to think. But go on, you have more to say. I think, too, your majesty, that by staying here as you have done this fortnight past without action, you have encouraged the other two cities to make more desperate resistance, and it seems to me that you are in a dangerous position, and may at any moment be overwhelmed with disaster, for there is nothing whatever to prevent either of the other two from sending troops to burn the open city of Icy in your absence, and that danger must increase every day as they take courage by your idleness. Idleness. There shall be idleness no longer. The man speaks the truth. We will consider further of this. We will move on to Edelton, turning to his barons. If it please your majesty, said Baron Ingolf, this man invented a new trigger for our carriage crossbows, but he was lost in the crowd, and we have sought for him in vain. My sergeant here has this moment recognised him. Why did you not come to us before, fellow? said the king. Let him be released. Let him be entertained at our expense. Give him clothes and a sword. We will see you further. Overjoined at this sudden turn of fortune, Felix forgot to let well alone. He had his audience with him for a moment. He could not resist, as it were, following up his victory. He thanked the king and added that he could make a machine which would knock the walls yonder to pieces without it being necessary to approach nearer than half a bowshot. What is this? said the king. Ingolf, have you ever heard of such a machine? There is no such thing, said the baron, beginning to feel that his professional reputation as the master of the artillery was assailed. There is nothing of the kind known. It will shoot stones as big, as heavy as a man can lift, said Felix eagerly, and easily knock towers to fragments. The king looked from one to another. He was incredulous. The baron smiled scornfully. Ask him, your majesty. Ask how these stones are to be thrown. No bow could do it. How these stones to be thrown, said the king sharply. Beware how you play with us. By the force of twisted ropes, your majesty. They all laughed. The baron said, You see, your majesty, there is nothing of the kind. This is some 
jester. The twisted rope should be a halter, said another courtier, one of those who hoped for the rich man's downfall. It can be done, your majesty, cried Felix alarmed. I assure you, a stone of two hundred weight might be thrown a quarter of a mile. The assembly did not repress its contempt. The man is a fool, said the king, who now thought that Felix was a jester who had put a trick upon him. But your jork is out of point. I will teach such fellows to try tricks on us. Beat him out of camp. The provost's men seized him, and in a moment he was dragged off his feet and bodily carried outside the entrenchment. Thence they pushed him along, beating him with the butts of their spears to make him run the faster. The groups they passed laughed and jeered. The dogs barked and snapped at his ankles. They hurried him outside the camp and, thrusting him savagely with their spear butts, sent him headlong. There they left him, with the caution which he did not hear, being insensible, that if he ventured inside the lines he would be at once hanged. Like a dead dog, they left him on the ground. Some hours later, in the dusk of the evening, Felix stole from the spot, skirting the forest like a wild animal afraid to venture from its cover till he reached the track which led to Aesi. His one idea was to reach his canoe. He would have gone through the woods, but that was not possible. Without axe or wood knife to hew away, the tangled brushwood he knew to be impassable, having observed how thick it was when coming. Aching and trembling in every limb, not so much with physical suffering as that kind of inward fever which follows unmerited injury, the revolt of the mind against it, he followed the track as fast as his weary frame would let him. He had tasted nothing that day but the draught from the king's cup, and a second draught when he had recovered consciousness from the stream that flowed past the camp. Yet he walked steadily on without pause. His head hung forward and his arms were listless, but his feet mechanically plodded on. He walked indeed by his will and not with his sinews. Thus, like a ghost, for there was no life in him, he traversed the shadowy forest. The dawn came, and still he kept onwards. As the sun rose higher, having now travelled fully twenty miles, he saw houses on the right of the trail. They were evidently those of retainers or workmen employed on the manor, for a castle stood at some distance. An hour later, he approached the second or open city of Icy, where the ferry was across the channel. In his present condition, he could not pass through the town. No one there knew of his disgrace, but it was the same to him as if they had. Avoiding the town itself, he crossed the cultivated fields, and upon arriving at the channel, he at once stepped in, and swam across to the opposite shore. It was not more than sixty yards, but weary as he was, it was an exhausting effort. He sat down, but immediately got up and struggled on. The church tower on the slope of the hill was a landmark by which he easily discovered the direction of the spot where he had hidden the canoe, but he felt unable to push through the belt of brushwood, reeds and flags beside the shore, and therefore struck through the firs, following a cattle track which doubtless led to another grazing ground. This ran parallel with the shore, and when he judged himself about level with the canoe, he left it and entered the wood itself. For a little way he could walk, but the thick fir branches soon blocked his progress, and he could progress only on hands and knees, creeping beneath them. There was a hollow space under the lower branches, free from brushwood. Thus he painfully approached the lake, and, ascending the hill, 
after an hour's weary work emerged among the rushes and reeds. He was within 200 yards of the canoe, for he recognised the island opposite it. In ten minutes, he found it undisturbed and exactly where he had left it, except that the breeze had strewn the dry reeds with which it was covered with willow leaves, yellow and dead. They fall while all the rest are green, which had been whirled from the branches. Throwing himself upon the reeds beside the canoe, he dropped asleep as if he had been dead. He awoke as the sun was sinking and sat up, hungry in the extreme, but much refreshed. There were still some stores in the canoe, of which he ate ravenously, but he felt better now. He felt at home beside his boat. He could hardly believe in the reality of the hideous dream through which he had passed, but when he tried to stand, his feet, cut and blistered, only too painfully assured him of its reality. He took out his hunter's hide and cloak and spread himself a comfortable bed. Though he had slept so long, he was still weary. He reclined in a semi-conscious state, his frame slowly recovering from the strain it had endured, till, by degrees, he fell asleep again. Sleep, nothing but sleep, restores the overtaxed mind and body. Chapter 21 A Voyage The sun was up when Felix awoke, and as he raised himself, the beauty of the lake before him filled him with pleasure. By the shore it was so calm that the trees were perfectly reflected, and the few willow leaves that had fallen floated without drifting one way or another. Farther out, the islands were lit up with the sunlight, and the swallows skimmed the water following the outline of their shores. In the lake beyond them, glimpses of which he could see through the channel or passage between, there was a ripple where the faint southwestern breeze touched the surface. His mind went out to the beauty of it. He did not question or analyse his feelings. He launched his vessel and left that hard and tyrannical land for the loveliness of the water. Paddling out to the islands, he passed between them and reached the open lake. There he hoisted the sail. The gentle breeze filled it. The sharp cut water began to divide the ripples. A bubbling sound arose, and steering due north, straight out to the open and boundless expanse, he was carried swiftly away. The mallards, who saw the canoe coming, at first scarcely moved, never thinking that a boat would venture outside the islands, within whose line they were accustomed to see vessels. But when the canoe continued to bear down upon them, they flew up and descended far away to one side. When he had sailed past the spot where these birds had floated, the lake was his own. By the shores of the islands, the crows came down from mussels. Moorhens swam in and out among the rushes. Water rats nibbled at the flags. Pikes basked at the edge of the weeds. Summer snipes ran along the sand, and doubtless an otter here and there was in concealment. Without the line of the shoals and islets, now that the mallards had flown, there was a solitude of water. It was far too deep for the longest weeds. Nothing seemed to exist here. The very water snails seek the shore, or are drifted by the currents in shallow corners. Neither great nor little care for the broad expanse. The canoe moved more rapidly as the wind came now with its full force over the distant woods and hills, and though it was but a light southerly breeze, the broad sail impelled the taper vessel swiftly. Reclining in the stern, Felix lost all consciousness of aught 
but that he was pleasantly borne along. His eyes were not closed, and he was aware of the canoe, the lake, the sunshine, and the sky. And yet he was asleep. Physically awake, he mentally slumbered. It was rest. After the misery, exertion, and excitement of the last fortnight, it was rest. Intense rest for body and mind. The pressure of the water against the handle of the rudder paddle, the slight vibration of the wood as the bubbles rushed by beneath, alone, perhaps kept him from really falling asleep. This was something which could not be left to itself. It must be firmly grasped, and that effort restrained his drowsiness. Three hours passed. The shore was twelve or fifteen miles behind, and looked like a blue cloud, for the summer haze hid the hills, more than would have been the case in clearer weather. Another hour, and at last Felix, awakening from his slumberous condition, looked round and saw nothing but the waves. The shore he had left had entirely disappeared, gone down. If there were land more lofty on either side, the haze concealed it. He looked again. He could scarcely comprehend it. He knew the lake was very wide, but it had never occurred to him that he might possibly sail out of sight of land. This, then, was why the mariners would not quit the islands. They feared the open water. He stood up and swept the horizon carefully, shading his eyes with his hand. There was nothing but a mist at the horizon. He was alone with the sun, the sky, and the lake. He could not surely have sailed into the ocean without knowing it. He sat down, dipped his hand overboard, and tasted the drops that adhered. The water was pure and sweet, warm from the summer sunshine. There was not so much as a swift in the upper sky, nothing but slender filaments of white cloud. No swallows glided over the surface of the water. If there were fishes, he could not see them through the waves, which were here much larger, sufficiently large, though the wind was light, to make his canoe rise and fall with their regular rolling. To see fishes, a calm surface is necessary, and, like other creatures, they haunt the shallows and the shore. Never had he felt alone like this in the depths of the farthest forest he had penetrated. Had he contemplated beforehand the possibility of passing out of sight of land, when he had found that the canoe had arrived, he would probably have been alarmed and anxious for his safety. But, thus stumbling drowsily into the solitude of the vast lake, he was so astounded with his own discovery, so absorbed in thinking of the immense expanse, that the idea of danger did not occur to him. Another hour passed, and he now began to gaze about him more eagerly for some sight of land, for he had very little provision with him, and he did not wish to spend the night upon the lake. Presently, however, the mist on the horizon ahead appeared to thicken and then became blue, and in a shorter time than he expected, land came in sight. This arose from the fact of its being low, so that he had approached nearer than he knew before recognising it. At the time when he was really out of sight of the coast, he was much further from the hilly land left behind than from the low country in front, and not in the mathematical centre, as he had supposed, of the lake. As it rose and came more into sight, he already began to wonder what reception he should meet with from the inhabitants, and whether he should find them as hard of heart as the people he had just escaped from. Should he, indeed, venture among them at all? 
or should he remain in the woods till he had observed more of their ways and manners? These questions were being debated in his mind when he perceived that the wind was falling. As the sun went past the meridian, the breeze fell, till, in the hottest part of the afternoon, and when he judged that he was not more than eight miles from shore, it sank to the merest zephyr, and the waves, by degrees, diminished. So faint became the breeze in half an hour's time, and so intermittent, that he found it patience wasted even to hold the rudder paddle. The sail hung and was no longer bellied out, as the idle waves rolled under it, flat against the mast. The heat was now so intolerable, the light reflected from the water increasing the sensation, that he was obliged to make himself some shelter by partly lowering the sail and hauling the yard athwart the vessel so that the canvas acted as an awning. Gradually, the waves declined in volume, and the gentle breathing of the wind ebbed away, till at last the surface was almost still, and he could feel no perceptible air stirring. Weary of sitting in the narrow boat, he stood up, but he could not stretch himself sufficiently for the change to be of much use. The long summer day, previously so pleasant, now appeared scarcely endurable. Upon the silent water the time lingered, for there was nothing to mark its advance, not so much as a shadow beyond that of his own boat. The waves, now having no crest, went under the canoe without chafing against it, or rebounding, so that they were noiseless. No fishes rose to the surface. There was nothing living near, except a blue butterfly, which settled on the mast, having ventured thus far from land. The vastness of the sky, overarching the broad water, the sun, and the motionless filaments of cloud, gave no repose for his gaze, for they were seemingly still. To the weary gaze motion is repose, the waving boughs, the foam-tipped waves, afford positive rest to look at. Such intense stillness as this of the summer sky was oppressive. It was like living in space itself, in the ether above. He welcomed at last the gradual downward direction of the sun, for, as the heat decreased, he could work with the paddle. Presently, he furled the sail, took his paddle, and set his face for the land. He laboured steadily, but made no apparent progress. The canoe was heavy, and the outrigger or beam, which was of material use in sailing, was a drawback to paddling. He worked till his arms grew weary, and still the blue land seemed as far off as ever. But by the time the sun began to approach the horizon, his efforts had produced some effect. The shore was visible, and the woods beyond. They were still five miles distant, and he was tired. There was little chance of his reaching it before night. He put his paddle down for refreshment and rest, and while he was thus engaged, a change took place. A faint puff of air came. A second, and a third. A tiny ripple ran along the surface. Now he recollected that he had heard the mariners depended a great deal on the morning and the evening, the land and the lake, breeze as they worked along the shore, this was the first breath of the land breeze. It freshed after a while, and he reset his sail. An hour or so afterwards he came near the shore. He heard the thrushes singing and the cuckoo calling long before he landed. He did not stay to search about for a creek, but ran the canoe on the strand, which was free from reeds or flags, a sign that the waves often beat furiously there, rolling as they must for so many miles. 
He hauled the canoe up as high as he could, but presently when he looked about him, he found that he was on a small and narrow island with a channel in the rear. Tired as he was, yet anxious for the safety of his canoe, he pushed off again and paddled round and again beached her with the island between her and the open lake, else he feared if a south wind should blow, she might be broken to pieces on the strand before his eyes. It was prudent to take the precaution, but, as it happened, the next day the lake was still. He could see no traces of human occupation upon the island, which was of small extent and nearly bare, and therefore, in the morning, paddled across the channel to the mainland, as he thought. But upon exploring the opposite shore, it proved not to be the mainland, but merely another island. Paddling round it, he tried again, but with the same result. He found nothing but island after island, all narrow and bearing nothing except bushes. Observing a channel which seemed to go straight in among these islets, he resolved to follow it, and did so, resting at noontime, the whole morning. As he paddled slowly in, he found the water shallower, and weeds, bulrushes and reeds became thick, except quite in the centre. After the heat of midday had gone over, he resumed his voyage, and still found the same. Islets and banks, more or less covered with hawthorn bushes, willow, elder and alder, succeeded to islets, fringed round their edges with reeds and reed canary grass. When he grew weary of paddling, he landed and stayed the night. The next day he went on again, and still for hour after hour rode in and out among these banks and islets, till he began to think he should never find his way out. The farther he penetrated, the more numerous became the waterfowl. Ducks swam among the flags, or rose with a rush and splashing. Coots and moorhens dived and hid in the reeds. The lesser grebe sank at the sound of the paddle like a stone. A strong northern diver raised a wave as he hurried away under the water, his course marked by the undulation above him. Sedge-birds chirped in the willows. Black-headed buntings sat on the trees and watched him without fear. Bearded titmice were there, clinging to the stalks of the sedges, and long-necked herons rose from the reedy places where they loved to wade. Blue dragonflies darted to and fro, or sat on water plants, as if they were flowers. Snakes swam across the channels, vibrating their heads from side to side. Swallows swept over his head. Pike struck from the verge of the thick weeds as he came near. Perch rose for insects as they fell helpless into the water. He noticed that the water, though so thick with reeds, was as clear as that in the open lake. There was no scum such as accumulates in stagnant places. From this he concluded that there must be a current, however slight, perhaps from rivers flowing into this part of the lake. He felt the strongest desire to explore further till he reached the mainland, but he reflected that mere exploration was not his object. It would never obtain aurora for him. There were no signs whatever of human habitation, and from reeds and bulrushes, however interesting, nothing could be gained. Reluctantly, therefore, on the third morning, having passed the night on one of the islets, he turned his canoe and paddled southwards towards the lake. He did not for a moment attempt to retrace the channel by which he had entered. It would have been an impossibility. He took advantage of any clear space to push through. It took him as long to get out as it had to get in. It was the afternoon of the fourth day when he at last regained the coast. He rested the remainder of the afternoon, wishing to start fresh in the morning, having determined to follow the line of the shore eastwards, and so gradually to circumnavigate the lake. 
If he succeeded in nothing else, that at least would be something to relate to Aurora. The morning rose fair and bright, with a southwesterly air rather than a breeze. He sailed before it. It was so light that his progress could not have exceeded more than three miles an hour. Hour after hour passed away, and still he followed the line of the shore, now going a short way out to skirt an island, and now nearer it to pass between sandbanks. By noon he was so weary of sitting the canoe that he ran her ashore and rested a while. It was the very height of the heat of the day when he set forth again, and the wind lighter than in the morning. It had, however, changed a little, and blew now from the west, almost too exactly above to suit his craft. He could not make a map while sailing, or observe his position accurately, but it appeared to him that the shore trended towards the southeast, so that he was gradually turning an arc. He supposed from this that he must be approaching the eastern end of the lake. The water seemed shallower, to judge from the quantity of weeds. Now and then he caught glimpses between the numerous islands of the open lake, and there too the weeds covered the surface in many places. In an hour or two the breeze increased considerably, and travelling so much quicker he found it required all his dexterity to steer past the islands and clear the banks upon which he was drifting. Once or twice he grazed the willows that overhung the water, and heard the keel of the canoe drag on the bottom. As much as possible, he bore away from the mainland, steering southeast, thinking to find deeper water and to be free of the islets. He succeeded in the first, but the islets were now so numerous that he could not tell where the open lake was. The farther the afternoon advanced, the more the breeze freshened, till occasionally, as it blew between the islands, it struck his mast almost with the force of a gale. Felix welcomed the wind, which would enable him to make great progress before evening. If such favouring breezes would continue, he could circumnavigate the waters in a comparatively short time, and might return to Aurora, so far at least successful. Hope filled his heart, and he sang to the wind. The waves could not rise among these islands, which intercepted them before they could roll far enough to gather force, so that he had all the advantage of the gale without its risks. Except a light haze all around the horizon, the sky was perfectly clear and was pleasant now the strong currents of air cooled the sun's heat. As he came round the islands, he constantly met and disturbed parties of waterfowl, mallards and coots. Sometimes they merely hid in the weeds, sometimes they rose, and when they did so, passed to his rear. You have been listening to episode 8 of Storytimes After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffries. To listen to episode 9, tune in in two weeks. Please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you are listening on to be kept up to date for new episode releases. And why not share this podcast by clicking on the share icon? 